Aloha. You are listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. My guest today, Chip Huth, a commander with the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department and a senior consultant with the Arbinger Institute. Chip and I have known each other for years. He has 28 years of law enforcement experience and is a master in many things, including defensive tactics, international law enforcement, works with military and corporate clients, and one of the most entertaining people you'll ever meet. He's written a book, which he co-wrote, called Unleashing the Power of Unconditional Respect, Transforming Law Enforcement and Police Training. And we're going to talk about leadership today. We're going to talk a bit about law enforcement. It's a big issue right now in the United States. Thanks for coming on the show today. I want to start by introducing our listeners. You know, Some of them follow Arbinger and might know who you are, but some of them don't at all. Maybe just a little bit of backstory. And I always ask this question, how did you get to where you are today? Wow, that's, a, that's quite a journey, actually. Um, I guess the short version is uh, my father was a career criminal and a clinical psychopath. My mother suffered from schizophrenia, which is bipolar. And so that combination ended up causing a, creating a situation where we traveled around the country, we were homeless and uh, fostered at different times in children's homes or Salvation Armies or missions. Uh, that was pretty much the first 11 years of my life. And, you know, classical, all the classical abuse that you might read about, you know, we experienced that to, to varying degrees, uh, three of my siblings and I. And then uh, has chronicled in the first chapter of The Outward Mindset, my uncle, uh, who I, we just lost him, uh, going to be two years now, coming up in the spring. Um, my mother's brother, he, he finally learned of, my dad had done a good job of keeping us out of contact with, you know, my mom's family, but uh, he had finally learned about um, how bad the abuse was getting with my dad. And so he shows up at our place where we were at the time, I think it was Homestead, Florida, and he just kind of came, comes in and he, he tells my dad, Hey, I'm here to get Mary and the kids. And if you get up from that table, it'll be the last damn thing you ever do. And my dad was only ever scared of one man that I knew of. And that was my uncle John. So he sat there drinking a six pack and he loaded us up in all our clothes up in trash bags and put us in the car and drove us to Missouri. And that just started, uh, you know, I started working on a farm, hauling hay for Nicola Bale and, cleaning waters and turkey houses and um, culling turkeys, things of that nature. Um, learned how to drive a truck <laughs> you know, when I was 11 and, you know, all of that stuff. I learned a great work ethic from the farmer there that I worked for. And, you know, we were poor, but, you know, well-fed, you know, happy. And that went on pretty well until I was 17. I went into the Army. Um, I actually graduated high school in Ohio. I went and lived with my older half-brother uh, for a couple of years and graduated high school in Ohio. And then I went off to the Army, uh, joined as a reservist. Uh, my whole idea was I need to be, I want to be a cop. More than anything, I want to be a police officer. Police officers rescued us, I mean, a dozen times when we were homeless or out in the street. And, um, you know, everything from taking my dad to jail to taking us to Salvation Army or something of that nature. So police officers were big 
in my mind, big heroes. And so I wanted to do that. So went into the army again as a reservist, um, did end up having a couple of activations, but uh, ultimately it led me to policing. I policed in a small town called Lake Ozark, Missouri, until I could get hired on to the Kansas City, Missouri PD. And the Kansas City, Missouri PD has one of the largest SWAT teams in the nation. And I just, that's what drew me here was that and the fact that it's centrally located and I love to travel. I mean, it's just been a great ride and I'm coming up on 29 years here. So that's kind of, uh, in a nutshell, how I got here. You're introduced to Arbinger. And I think the, the big story and one of the reasons that Chip is famous is that this in combination with some other things was a huge turning point for you in your, in your life and in your career as a police officer. Yes. Yes. Well, at the time I was leading a internationally recognized SWAT team. Um, we would go on to be internationally recognized for some incredible work, but I was leading that team from an inward mindset. I was leading that team as a way of making me look good. Like, you know, I wanted to be there for, you know, the accolades and, and, you know, just to be known as the leader of this team, but it was, the team was a bit troubled uh, in terms of use of force complaints and property damage complaints and just discourtesy in general. And I was, I was, you know, they say the first, the first step to getting out of a hole is to stop digging. And I was definitely just, I just kept digging when I got there. And I, I just kept, you know, my, my leadership style back then could be best characterized as closed distance apply force. And uh, ironically, that was my parenting style too. So you can imagine how well all that worked out for me. But when I encountered Arbinger, uh, it just, you know, well, the first time when I read the book, I, the book Leadership and Self-Deception, I found it at an airport in Denver, Colorado. I was on a, a bit of a layover. I said on one podcast, I was talking to someone, I said I was stranded. You know, like stranded seems like a really dramatic word to use in the 21st century. Like I was stranded at Denver, Denver, Denver International Airport, right? Like I'm a, they got boxed water there. It's not like you're not exactly stranded. But uh, I, but I found this book and I read it. And the thing about the book was I was sure when I read that book that it told me what was wrong with every single person in my life that disagreed with me. And I went around prescribing it to people like, you've got to read this book. Anybody that I had, like if you and I were in a meeting and you were like, Chip, I really don't see it that way. I'd be like, oh, Chad needs a book. And, you know, so people that know anything about Arbinger understand that I completely missed the boat on what that book was trying to say to me and through, through Providence or, or karma or whatever you want to call it. Um, one of my best friends, uh, he's like a brother to me, really Jack Colwell. Uh, he invited me to attend uh, an Arbinger course of facilitation that he was putting on. So he had come about, he had come into Arbinger's work in a totally different way than I had. He was searching for curriculum for a leadership academy. He stumbles up on Arbinger and he thinks it's the answer, right? This is the foundation for everything they want to build at the leadership academy. And he's all excited about it. And when he invites me, I'm all excited about it because I think it's what everybody else around me needs to hear. So yeah, right? So I come in to this class, you know, all pumped up because people are, that really need this are going to get it. And I'm going to be part of watching this happen. And then probably halfway through day one, and you know, you know how it goes, Chad. Halfway through day one, I'm very dejected because I realize that they're talking about me in the book, and I'm the reason that all the relationships around me, personal and professional, are failing. 
and it just kind of crushes me. And I don't remember how long I walked around in a stupor before I just accepted the truth and, and, and built a built a system of accountability around me with my other team members. And we just started just moving the needle every day. Just, you know, we had, you know, there were days that we probably did less than we wanted to, but we had no zero days. Every day was one step forward, one step forward, trying to improve the team. And the reason that um, I guess that I'm so well known uh, in the Arbinger world is that that team, not me, that team went from the most complained on team in the entire department to achieving a record of zero complaints, while at the same time tripling their productivity and all the other metrics. And that was, if you'd have told me a SWAT team could do that type of work without getting complained on, I would have thought you were crazy. I mean, I don't even believe it now. People don't believe me sometimes. They're like, like that didn't happen. And I'm like, well, we got an award for it. So like it's hanging on the wall. Uh, it really happened and it, it blows me away. But that again was, was due to Arbinger's influence and the work put in by the men. And they were all men at that time on that team. I think that, you're right that 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 there's there's something cool and almost magical about this transformation, this personal transformation, this team transformation. Um, what happens? And I think in part it's it's one of those areas, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. In an area with a SWAT team where you don't expect to sort of see this results with this sort of curriculum, right? This whole idea of seeing people as people and and working from that mindset is not typically what you think about when you think about a SWAT team. And, you know, Arbinger's since gone on to work with Army Rangers and Navy SEALs and, you know, other other organizations, again, where you don't necessarily see this connection. And, and I want to talk more about that in a minute. But of all the stories that I heard about you, and I've, I've seen the videos and everything else, um, what, what I won't forget is we're at the Arbinger conference about about a year ago, a little a little more than a year ago, and we're we're standing in the in the in the food area. It was during lunch, and we're just talking. And you tell me a story that I actually asked you later to include in my book, and I didn't I didn't use your name, and so you know we we can edit this out of the podcast if if you don't want to talk about it here. But the story you told me, it it deeply impacted me. Uh, in in all the chip stories that I'd heard, and it had nothing to do with being a cop or working on the SWAT team or anything else that had to do with being a, being a step parent. And, and, and one of the reasons I'm hoping maybe you can retell that story now is that, you know, when we think about leadership and we think about, you know, what it means to really change the way that we see people in the world, for me, it always starts in our most basic relationships. And, and, you know, we can, we can, you know, clap and applaud, you know, what's happening sort of professionally and organizationally, but, you know, let's be honest, we're also paid to do that. We're actually, you know, that's, that's actually what our expectation should be is that we're delivering that sort of quality service. I find it often hardest at home. And so, you know, you told the story, it deeply impacted me. It's, it's included in the book, but I'm going to tee you up if you remember. Uh, And uh, I, I would love for our listeners to hear it. Um, from the person who experienced the, the, to make a very long story short, my wife and I uh, started dating before she was actually divorced from her, from her previous husband. Uh, she was separated, living separately. You know, they had the shared custody thing going, but they had, weren't officially divorced. And that caused a little bit of resentment on the part of her ex-husband or soon to be ex-husband. Um, and he and I had known each other. We'd been professionally acquainted and, um, we weren't, you know, we weren't 
friends. We weren't enemies. We just really weren't, we didn't operate in the same circles. And, um, you know, I, I can only imagine I'd have to probably ask him and we're on really good terms now, so I could, but, um, you know, what was going through his mind, but obviously, you know, when you're, you're losing your family or you, 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 you see it as losing your family. It's probably pretty stressful and emotional, but so long story short, again, uh, her husband and her had a son, Connor. He's my stepson now. And Connor was about, I don't know, six years old, maybe at the time, five or six. Um, and he's riding in my truck with me one day and we're heading up, up the road and he's not saying too much and normally pretty talkative. And he, he finally just turns to me and says, uh, Hey, hey, Chip, he goes, my dad says you're a liar. And and I'm like in my mind, right? I'm thinking my 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 reflex was to get really defensive, right? Like, you know, I, the last thing I want is this this kid who I love to see me as a liar. And I don't think of myself as a liar. And But, but I just kind of fought that reflex. I kind of pushed it down a little bit. And I said, well, Connor, I said, if your dad called me a liar. He must've had a really good reason. I said, your dad is a good man. And if he thinks that I'm dishonest, then I'm sure that he has a good reason for believing that. And it was really, that was really difficult to say, to own that. Right. And so Connor just sits there for a second and he says, well, do you lie? And I said, yeah, buddy. I said, I do lie. I said, um, I lie sometimes when I'm scared of the truth. I lie sometimes when I'm afraid of looking bad. You know, I uh, sometimes I don't share things I should share. I said, but mostly every time that I lie, I'm just thinking about myself. I go and it makes me feel really bad. I said, but I haven't lied to you. I said, and I don't plan on lying to you. As so he sits there just again, really quiet. And he, and he finally turns to me and he says, Chip, I think my dad might be wrong on this one. And, uh, and we went on with what we were doing. And I, I was literally like fighting back tears, you know, and th that was a real turning point in our relationship. So he, you know, he's going to be 14 here and, um, it's, it's amazing. The whole, the whole situation's amazing. I mean, like we, his dad and his stepmom live right up the street. He walks back and forth from our house to theirs. We share 50% custody of him. We go to ball games together. We set together. We, you know, we co-parent together. It's like four of us doing this parenting thing. And that never would have been possible had I have went with my instincts and developed this, this defensiveness and been afraid to take that risk of being vulnerable. That would not be, we would not be where we're at today. So that's, that's the story. Not as good as you wrote it, but as best as I recall it. What, what I, I think what struck me about that story um, is a couple of things. You know, just because you're introduced to this material and you learn about outward mindset, inward mindset, or, you know, dangerous love or whatever, it's hard to live it. And it's hard to live it every day. And, and what you find is that just because you have the knowledge, it doesn't mean, first of all, that you're not going to have the reactions that you had, that immediate sort of defensiveness that comes up. And it also means this is a positive story, but it also means sometimes that we're not we're not going to make the right choices about what we do next, um, and that we're going to get defensive, or that we're going to blame back, or that we're going to horribleize you know another person back. But what I loved about that story was that you have that instinct, you take a deep breath, right, and and then what happens next changes everything. 
right? There, there's this fork in the road about what's going to happen with you and your stepson. It, it seems like it's a simple conversation, but it means everything about what's going to happen next, what you're going to say about his dad, what you're going to say about yourself, how honest you're willing to be and vulnerable you're willing to be about yourself, how you're going to, instead of uh, return blame for blame, that you're going to take that off and, and give his dad the benefit of the doubt. And, and the level of trust and connection that that builds between you and your stepson. And I can imagine that maybe pre-2008, that's not how Chip Youth uh, handles it. And and maybe not every day that's how Chip Youth hand, handles handles a situation like that. But there's so much power in, in what, you know, what I call in the book, these small and simple things, these small and simple conversations that can have these these huge, huge ripple effects um, in our relationships and what, what happens next. And, and this to me was just such a great example about when I'm trying to create space for others to turn. And it sounds to me like Connor may have been on the fence about you a little bit, right? He's getting, he's seen certain things and hearing from his mom some positive things, but he's hearing, you know, from his dad who he respects, you know, these other things. And so he's trying to figure you out and you're trying to invite him into that space. There's things that we can do. And in the book, I talk about truth and, and mercy and justice, but I talk about this last thing is peace. And it's how do I build trust, right? How do I build that trust that I'm going to be um, the person that, that you need me to be um, in this relationship? And, and you, you show that in that moment. And, I, and I, I just think it's extraordinary. And we were talking before the podcast got going, and you were sharing with me this this quote from the founder of Aikido. And I thought it was, I thought it was really cool and sort of pertinent um, to this moment. Because by, by now, if you've been reading Dangerous Love, it's been out for several months, or if you've you know been reading uh, Outward Mindset or Anatomy of Peace or Leadership and Self-Deception, you've been trying to apply this in your life, hopefully. And if you're anything like me, you've been doing it with some great successes and some, some pretty embarrassing failures. Uh, where where it's not happening the way that you want. And you were sharing this this anecdote with me that I thought was awesome. Yeah. So well, and just to preface that, you know, you talk about dangerous love uh, and the outward mindset. You know, those are those are not destinations. Those are directions, right? That's the thing. I mean, people think, well, I'm going to get to a point where I'm always outward, or I'm always loving dangerously. I'm always engaged in this in this productive process. But no, that's a direction. You're aiming at that. That's your trajectory, but that's not some. So that's not a place you're ever going to arrive and just live. You know, you know, you're not going to build a home there. You're going to be in and out of that box, and I think that's really important. And to that point, the the story I shared with you uh, was about Mariah Yoshiba, the the founder of Aikido, a diminutive uh, man. If you've seen him on the videos that are in black and white, of course. Uh, he, you'll see him doing rondories on videos and throwing people around. When you watch him, it looks, I mean, it looks like he's a superhero or something like a magician, the way that he pulled off the, the throws and the techniques, such fluidity. And the story goes that a reporter had watched him doing a rondori, which is just a demonstration of these different techniques. And the reporter approached him for an interview afterwards and said, Dr. Yoshiba, you know, I'm watching what you're doing here and it's magical. It's otherworldly. Uh, I'm just amazed by your skill and, you know, you, you never lose your balance. How is that humanly possible? To which Dr. Yoshiba replied, oh, sir, you've got it completely wrong. I am constantly losing my balance. My skill lies in my ability to recognize it and regain it. And I thought, man, yeah, right. That's what it is with us. 
you know, we're constantly losing our balance. We're constantly struggling for that middle way, but we're pulled off to the left or to the right by our ego, you know, by context that we didn't anticipate, um, you know, it, by our fear. Oh my gosh. You know, I heard you talk about fear on another one of your podcasts, another episode of your podcast, um, with Joe. And I was like, Whoa, yes. You know, I kept rewinding that and, and hitting playback on that. Um, cause fear is such a, such a motivator, such a driver for us, but those things are going to come into our lives and they're going to, they're going to throw us for a loop. And, you know, the, the key I think is how do we recover? You know, how, how can we recover? Then how do we learn to recover more quickly? And then eventually, how do we learn, like I did that day in the truck, for whatever reason, how do we learn to recognize those red flags, you know, that tell us trouble's coming, right? Because the fact of the matter is, uh, Connor's dad is a good man. You know, I wasn't making that up. And, you know, I could be empathic. I could say, well, what would it be like if I was in his situation? But that's not the kind of empathy that's needed. I need more of a clinical empathy. What would it be like if I was him in the situation that he's in? That's the kind of empathy that's called for. And when I asked that question, oh my goodness, of course he is not happy. I mean, he, as near as I can figure, he has lost the best woman in the world. Like that, you know, I mean, I've never met a person that has is put together, is kind, is generous, as my wife. And, you know, he's losing her. And then he sees this other person you know, with her and they appear to be happy. And, you know, gosh, when you think about that, I mean, how do you not get upset and angry? How do you not want to reach out and blame? I know I would. So, you know, it was very sincere. And I think that's what made it stick between Connor and I. And again, I, you know, whether it's Providence or, you know, God's grace or whatever you believe in, uh, I just happened to feel like I got it right that day, but there are so many times, Chad, that I've gotten it wrong. You know, there's one other anecdote from that Aikido master that I thought was really interesting. One time he was asked, if, if you've watched these videos, you know that sometimes he'll fight like six, seven, eight people at a time, right? And 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 if you watch him, they're flying all over the, they're flying over the mat. And sometimes it looks like he's hardly even moving. It almost looks fake. Right when you're watching it, sometimes because it doesn't even seem like he's doing much yet. Yet people are flying all over the place, and someone asked him, "Okay, what's the most important thing that, that that I need to do to learn how to do this?" And his response, which he used a lot, was to breathe. Remember to breathe. Right, and and I, you know, I thought about that in your story. Right, when you hear what Connor says at first, right, you say you take a pause, and what you actually said, I took a deep breath, right, because. That fear instinct that's natural that kicks in, right? You're under attack right now. I mean, Connor's just not only from Connor, but from Connor's dad, right? You're under attack right now. Or if you've got eight people coming at you on a mat right now, there's that natural um, biological instinct that you have, that sort of fight or flight instinct that that kicks in, that that every human being has to wrestle with. And how do you, how do you, and, and so that self-preservation instinct is there. We all know what's there. And taking that deep breath that ch changes the question from what will happen to me, right, to what will happen to us is, is, the, is the critical one. And, you know, it's interesting that the, 
the um, Aikido is the way of peace. It translates out roughly to sort of the way of peace. And it's actually an interesting martial art, unlike many martial arts, that actually tries to do no harm. Uh, right? Uh, the, the whole point, if you're doing Aikido, is that your opponent eventually just ex- gets exhausted and, and, and tires out from being thrown all over the mat. Even when you're thrown, they try to throw you in a way that doesn't actually hurt you when you when you hit the ground. I, I mean, it's such a different way of sort of thinking about things, but sort of understanding what we all understand at the end of a fight, which is the fight can end, I can win the fight, but the seeds of the next fight are planted right in the winning uh, of, of that fight. And so if we're thinking about conflict transformation and sustainable, you know, sort of reconciliation, winning a fight might be a temporary victory, but it's going to have long-term consequences. And, and, and you could have done that. You could have figured out how to win that fight and said, you want to know who the real liar is? And, and you know, blasted him. And, and maybe Connor would have believed you that day. And maybe Connor would have said, all right, you know, it's my dad that's the problem or what have you. But that would have led to so many other challenges and problems in your relationship going forward. And so moving and transforming that view of what will happen to me, that sort of self-preservation to, to this us-preservation, uh, it takes breathing sometimes, right? It, ta- it takes that deep breath and that sort of pause um, to remind us of where we're at. Because I don't care how much you've learned about outward mindset or whatever, those, those instincts are still going to be there with us at times. And, and they're going to present themselves when we feel that we're under attack. Yeah, I think it's probably one of the most hubristic things you could do is to assume that you've transcended all of that. You know, I think you have to stay grounded in your humanity and just realize, hey, look, um, I am, I am imperfect. I am fallible. I will make mistakes. What I really need to do is become an expert at apologizing and owning the mistakes that I make. You can never, ever be part of a solution if you can't own the problem. And I think that we're all saddled with this problem, if you will, of maybe part of it is, from an evolutionary perspective even, part of it is built into us at a real deep level to be thinking of ourselves first. But it's so counterintuitive. But the way that I get what I need is by actually thinking about others. And I love the way that you've said it on on a previous podcast, um, you were talking about, you know, it's us winning. I think it was my been with Robert Quinn. You guys were talking about the, he had an anecdote from Stephen Covey where he was talking about this guy saying that he was practicing win-win, but he was always losing. And I, and I think Quinn said, well, that, I guess that means you're not, Covey had replied according to, to your guess that I guess that means you're not practicing win-win, <laughs> you know, which is true. Right. But, but it's this idea of, like you said, you know, it's not what, what I need, it's what we need. It's us. It's us. That's the key, right? What's best for us in the situation moving forward? Because we're always in relationship with others. We're always in relationship with others. And Aikido, I think back to your example of, of Aikido is you're in relationship with the person you're throwing. You know, the, the uki is in relationship with the tori. The thrower is in relationship with the throne. And that's the way that works is you have to literally, if they push, you pull. If they pull, you push. You're not fighting them. You're actually incorporating their energy into whatever technique you're doing. And so we're constantly in relationship and there's constantly going to be friction that comes up, I think. And I'm no relationship expert, but I can tell you from all the ways that I've done it wrong, like from a via negativa 
negative negative perspective, a via negative perspective, I could tell you I've done it wrong so much. I could check all those boxes. Once I eliminate all those things I've done, what I'm left with is a pretty decent model of how to operate. And that's where I'm at. I've just, just trial by fire, uh, learned from a lot of my failures. Hope others can learn from my failures too. I want to segue all of this into you know, what's happening in the United States today. And uh, you know, I, I know what's going to happen is going to be a sensitive conversation for a lot of our listeners because a lot of people have really strong opinions uh, right now about what's happening in the United States, uh, uh, especially with the social unrest that's happening in the United States and, and much of that directed towards law enforcement uh, and, and the reaction from law enforcement. And uh, even to the point that when I told a couple of colleagues that I was going to have you on the show, they're like, are you sure? Are you sure you're ready? Are you sure you're ready to have a cop, you know, cop on the show? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. I'm under, <laughs> I know who's coming on the show and I'm sure. And, and Chip, I know you've been working on the front lines uh, of this in Kansas City. Uh, as you pointed out to earlier, Kansas City hasn't been Portland or Seattle or, or Chicago, but it's had its, its own protest and its own share of issues. Um, I've been working uh, behind the scenes um, with with groups on both sides, um, you know, about about this issue, and I'm I'm curious how we take all of this. And I know you've been working on this. I know the Kansas City Police Department has had leadership training around this as well. And you look at the problem that exists right now in America and the polarization that's happening um, in our country, and and much of it directed at law enforcement now, and and it being a, a flashpoint, right, for uh, racial discrimination or um, the sort of social um, problems that we face in America today. And I want to have a conversation um, about it. Um, I, my guess is that, interestingly, I, I could be wrong, but I bet, I bet many of my listeners um, are, are in the box with the police um, right now to, to a certain extent. Um, and... I'm I'm curious to hear your 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 perspective on this, especially through the lenses of everything that we've we've been talking about about what makes great leadership and about seeing the humanity of others and outward mindset, and and even lessons that you've learned um, from being a police officer in the way that 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 you and your team turned around the SWAT department. Man, yeah, boy, where to begin? Um, it is such a nuanced conversation. And I think the nuance isn't something we're specializing in these days. Um, I guess the first thing that I would say is, you know, we're, we've, we seem to engage in these grouping narratives that I find to be very unhelpful. We say things like the police or, or the African-American community or, you know, but, but it's like as if one police officer speaks for the entirety of police, right? or one African-American person speaks for all African-American people. I mean, the, the, the concept on its face is, is just ridiculous when you think about it, but we, we tend to be a little intellectually lazy by, by just using those grouping narratives, I think. And, and it's, that's really tough uh, because each police department is so unique. They're, they're a representative of their communities and you've traveled the world and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, we have a lot of diversity around this country. Um, and, you know, depending on where you're at, you're going to experience a totally different cultures. And then the police then are a reflection of that in some way. And I can tell you from working with the police, you know, around the world, um, they have their own customs in own, own parts of the United States and, and other parts of the world, their own ways of operating, their own, you know, organizational 
kind of kind of viewpoints on how they see themselves in relation to their community. Um, I've been very fortunate over the past 29 years to be part of a department that's generally done pretty well in that domain. They generally feel like we're not a separate entity from the community. We are also in the community. We're part of the community. We're just paid to give full-time attention to things that are really incumbent upon all community members to be focused on, right? It's public safety. You know, it's a, it's a corporate effort, but so back, back, circling back around to what's happening now, I think there's a couple things that are happening now. I think you've got one side of the, they, 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 there's a division that has been created between people who uh, are just convinced that the biggest danger facing uh, people of color in our country is the police. They're just convinced that the, the, the biggest danger to them, the biggest threat to them is the police, which from a data standpoint, there's no empirical evidence to support that assertion whatsoever. Uh, and all the research that's been done shows the opposite to be true. Um, but now on the other side of that, you can't discount the emotions and the intuitions because that's part of the conversation. So, you know, again, going back to that clinical empathy that I was talking about. You know, if I am a black man, let's say, and I'm stopped by the police and the police are discourteous to me, or they, I feel in some way they weren't procedurally just and how they interacted with me, you know, is, are my feelings legitimate that I might be discriminated against? Well, look, feelings aren't right or wrong. Feelings are what they are. They're subjective and you have to honor that in the conversation. So the, the thing that's nuanced about it is how do we get to a place where we can really look at this together and properly identify the problem. I think we've identified a problem. The police are a problem. I'm saying that as the police. We're a problem, but we're just not the problem that we're being made out to be as a group. I do believe that the way we show up with people in our everyday interactions, but you know, it's just, we're just not at a place right now. And it's because the police, I, I take responsibility. I haven't done a good enough job of building the relationships I needed to build when things were good. You know, I, I took, I, I personally, I've set on my laurels. I, you know, when the community was, you know, high-fiving us after 9-11 or, you know, we were at the Super Bowl parade back in February and everybody was just hugging us and everybody's drawn together. That's the time when we need to be really strengthening relationships and really talking to people, really reaching out, really building those coalitions. And, and I, speaking for myself, I know I, I was lazy about it. I mean, I, I did it, but not to the degree I should have. And I just wonder how true that might be for my other brothers and sisters in law enforcement. You know, did we not take advantage of the trust that we had? Did we not build on that and, and, and develop enough capital that when we had these events, like what happened in Minneapolis, um, you know, that's, that, that, that seemed to be the flashpoint for this, this national movement, um, this anti-police movement, I guess you could call it, um, you know, do, you know, could we stand before our communities and say, hey, look, this is, we denounce the process, uh, you know, th that was utilized in this situation. We denounce that. That's not something we're, we sign off on at all. We stand with you in being an objective to that. Um, but we call for calm. We call for rationality. We, we, we're here with you to, you know, we're, we're all in this together, if you will, right? I think what's, what's fascinating to me is how, because I'm always like, okay, the problem's the problem. And as you said, you know, Chip, the problem is nuanced. As a conflict mediator, 
I always dive to the, the, the most basic level where problems exist, which is relationship. And so I, I appreciate you start starting with, okay, one way that you can look at this is that we have a relationship problem. I'm having many African-American friends who I am close with and who I've been talking to in this process and growing up in, in Kansas City as well and uh, growing up in that community as well. There's a lot of pain, a lot of deep, deep pain in the community. How do we get to a point where this moves from the collusion that we've been seeing and the blame sort of shooting back and forth to some sort of reconciliation that actually leads to a better relationship going forward in the community between police um, and people of color? What has to happen from the police side? Yeah, that's a great question. First off, I would say this. So I'm, I'm not on the side of the police for the record. I'm on the side of the community and the police are part of the community. And that's the only way we can ever move forward is for us to, to erase this imaginary divide. A part of which, a big part of which has been caused by us, meaning police officers, law enforcement as a whole. You know, we, we operate inside a bureaucracy and bureaucracies are designed for efficiency. They're not designed to promote healthy, meaningful relationships. And what we need most is healthy, meaningful relationships. Those are the things we have to leverage when things get stressful. And policing is one of the most stressful things you can ever experience. Um, now, look, um, I think, and I've been saying this for a while now, that the way that we do this is to look at every contact we have with every single person has a blank canvas and we attempt to paint a masterpiece on that canvas. It's not what I'm doing. It's how I show up with you and what I'm doing. It doesn't matter if I'm arresting your dad. It doesn't matter if I'm giving directions. It doesn't matter if I'm changing a bicycle tire or comforting a child at an accident scene. I have to be able to be in that situation. And this word sounds so soft, but loving. And what I mean by loving is, if it is true, and I believe it is true, that this world, something we can all agree on, is characterized in large part by unfair suffering. People will suffer. You will suffer. I will suffer. Everyone in the world will suffer. It's the price we pay for existence in a world that is so complex. I think of love as the amelioration of unnecessary suffering. What can I do to, one, not make the situation worse? And then two, make it incrementally better. And I have an opportunity to do that, Chad, with every person I contact. And nobody has a greater opportunity than the police because we contact people all across the strata, from the richest to the poorest. And so for my part, I think the answer lies with law enforcement. Somebody's got to go first. Somebody's got to turn first. And I think it should be us. Uh, that's what I've been advocating. Right now, I feel like we are a little bit in a situation where, as a culture, it appears that we've circled the wagons a bit, and we're trying to use things like data, which has its place in the conversation, without a doubt. Uh, we're trying to use things like that uh, kind of as a hammer to fight back the emotions that people are feeling, the experience that they're feeling. You know, we're storytelling creatures. We, you know, this is something that we've been doing for thousands and thousands of years, and an anecdote is much more powerful than a set of data. It may be statistically insignificant, the number of unarmed people, let's say, 
black, white, or other that are killed by the police when you look at the aggregate. But it's very significant if you're the brother, father, sister, mother of someone that's killed by the police, even if that killing was almost unavoidable. It's still very significant to you. It's still very hurtful to you. And how do we find a place where we can reconcile those things? And I think we do it before it happens. You know, we educate, we talk, we discuss. But I mean, we need to to really come together with our community at large and be able to say, hey, look, we've made some mistakes. Uh, We will make more, but we are going to move forward in earnest. Part of this, we've got to own our past. We've got to own you know, the policing doesn't have a, the best history uh, in America. You know, we've certainly had some dark moments. Um, we tend to not want to to acknowledge those. We tend to, um, you know, we tend to want to, to nobody wants to, to think about that kind of stuff, but it happened, right? I mean, that, that, that stuff occurred. And I think for me, it's the police. It's us stepping up and owning what we can own, trying not to be defensive. It's hard, though. Here's the other thing with police, and people may not know this, people that are listening may be interested in this. Uh, police are human beings. That part's not surprising. But they're placed in situations that are really hard to describe, and they're subject to all the same emotions that other people are. And what happens a lot is that they tend to adopt cynicism as a coping mechanism. They tend to become very cynical. And I've seen this with many police officers. Uh, I've seen police officers that wear it as a badge of honor, uh, not most, but some, and they think, and they've been taught, falsely taught, that the way to insulate themselves from the emotional trauma of all the things that they face is to become cynical, to become indifferent, and that indifference comes off to people. They don't just use that indifference in the situations that are high stress. They, they, it's like an operating system constantly running in the background, so if I, you're asking me for directions, and I'm rolling my eyes at you or rolling my window down halfway or blowing you off. I'm giving you this. What you're feeling is that you're an obstacle, right? You're in my way and you're feeling it in the core of your being. You know, I, I'm, that's a huge thing. I mean, how do we, how do we help our, our officers overcome that? You know, because, you know, you're talking about, I mean, if you, if you could just, and I've taken people out with me in my teams when I was running SWAT teams back in the days and just, just for eight hours, just, just ride with us, just watch everything we do, watch every interaction, just experience it. And imagine doing that every day for a career and, 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 and somehow maintaining your, you know, your, your mental health outwardness, I guess. Right. I mean, it's, it's a challenge. Oh, brother. I was talking to some uh, some college-aged activists. They wanted all. They had a lot of demands, um, you know. And, and God love them. They have no understanding of bureaucracy, which I kind of admire them for, by the way. Because <laughs> like, what's like your, you're in this bureaucratic system? Because the first thing I'm thinking of is they have this idea, and I'm thinking, who's going to fund that? Like, <laughs> like, how are we going to pay for? That? And one of the things they brought up that I thought was really amazing for for them to be thinking about is, listen, you've got these officers in these stressful situations. We acknowledge that what are we doing for them in terms of mental health support? You know, are they getting regular debriefings or, you know, what are we doing? And I thought, man, that is a brilliant idea. I mean, can you imagine if we had proactive mental health counseling? But then I thought again, the the, the bureaucratic part of my mind thought, man, we can't even get people to, to pay for, you know, new cars to patrol in, right? We got, we got some Ford Crown Vicks with 200,000 miles on them. 
that are being held together with, you know, bubble gum, paper clips. And I'm thinking, who's going to pay for that type of training? How do you scale it? You know, you do something like that at, the, at let's say, at the Miller County Sheriff's Office, where you've got five deputies, versus the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, where when we're 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 scaling down now, but <laughs> I think we still got around 13, 1300. Uh, they want us to go lower. Um, but 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 the fact that these that these students and they 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 look like students, they were student age uh, activists were thinking like this. I thought was amazing. Like those are the that's the kind of fresh thinking we need to interject into the conversation. Uh, but we also need to to find some way to be practical about it. So the, I, I don't know. I, I again, I feel like I'm talking in circles a little bit. I've got so much spin around in my mind. Um, I do think that that the the this whole thing, the 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 answer to all of this begins with our willingness to see the humanity of others, our willingness to um, adopt their perspective, to understand behavior without condoning it, and to not see ourselves as these crusaders against evil. That is not what we do. What what excites me about this is these are the sort of conversations that need to be happening. I, I don't know all the answers because as you said, they're very complex. And actually I think they require people with backgrounds in economics and people with backgrounds in social work and people with backgrounds in political science and, and therapists and psychologists, not only thinking about the mental health of police officers, which absolutely should be deeply taken into account, but the mental health of living uh, in a community that is uh, that doesn't have great schools, that has uh, economic disparities that we know happen in many of these communities, the um, challenges um, having worked some in Baltimore and Detroit or whatever that these young people face every day. Um, you know, one of my first jobs was uh, in a in a in a high school in Anacostia in Washington D.C. teaching alternatives to violence. And uh, most of the young people that I taught in that school were African American, and and seeing what their 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 lives were like in their communities every day it was very dehumanizing for them, and and all the sort of mental health challenges that 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 led to um, were a real eye opener um, for me. And even though uh, my family didn't grow up so wealthy, and and I also went through through, through challenges, there was challenges that that I didn't have um, that they faced on a day on a, on a day to day basis. And um, and so I think part of it is thinking about a collaborative approach as well. We put all of the pressure on the police or all the pressure on the legislature um, to do something. And uh, this is my naivety thinking, but I'm a big collaboration guy. I mean, this is, this is my thing, is, is thinking about how do we do a better job of thinking about policing as being, as being constructive and not just um, punitive as well, right? And in what ways can police partner with social workers, therapists, um, and and ec- econo- economists and what have you to create a solution that is is actually sustainable? And and one thing I know from my police friends is that police are asked to do all sorts of things that they're not particularly trained to do on a day-to-day basis. Most of the calls that police get are not the not the sort of stuff that you would make movies about or you know television shows about, right? I mean I mean I don't know what your what, what the ratio would be for you, but you know the the things that you're asked to do on a day-to-day basis as a police officer um, dealing with people who have mental health issues, dealing with people that that are homeless, dealing with people that are having domestic disputes, um, you know with with, with each other, uh, you're not particularly trained 
Is that is that is that accurate? These are conversations that need to be had. And I, you know, my sense honestly is the police the police are plagued with an industrial age management mindset model that hasn't been updated. You know, we haven't changed our paradigm fast enough. We've changed it. I mean, you you know about the West West Side Can story in Kansas City, the amazing work that Chato and Matt did over there, right? Blue. Blew it away. Well, they redefined community policing is like a trite term now. Whatever they did, like it was just they just they it transcended that idea, that concept. They worked magic, right? Because they cared about people and they got down into the actual mix with people and they were they were involved in their daily lives. If I'm honest, this is what I feel. This is my I don't have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of thoughts. I don't conflate the two. You know, opinions for me require information and study and reflection. But here's my thought. I don't think there's enough people that care, Chad. I don't think there's enough people that care. I'm going to tell you right now, the people that can really be helpful in this situation, the people that can really invest and really bring to bear all the expertise we need, right? The police are just one little part of this. I just don't think they care. I think they go home uh, to wherever it is they live. And, and these, these, these tragedies become things they see on the news. The things that police officers deal with every day, I have held African-American men in my arms while they died. I've changed diapers. I've made bottles. All right. I've sat down on the couches of women who lived through the civil rights movement and listened to their stories. I've immersed myself in their lives and understood, right? That was the secret to my team succeeding like they did. It, it was that, that we had discussions like, look, if you were a, a young kid living in this neighborhood who never met your dad, mom was addicted to crack, you slept on your floor in your bedroom because you were scared that if you were in your bed, you might catch a stray bullet through the wall and you couldn't make it to school with your shoes. If you were that kid, would it be okay for you to, in your mind, would it be okay to join a gang? And every one of my team members said, oh, hell yeah, I'd join a gang. And, and, and there's a difference between understanding behavior and condoning it. And what, what they learned to do was understand it. And they met people where they were at. I think they felt seen. I think they felt seen. And I think the, the officers felt like they could identify with what was happening. Uh, and so I, I, I don't know. I just feel like in my heart, if we could do something to, if I were in a position as a police executive where I could go out into the community and say, look, we need a lot of stakeholders to come together here. We need to focus on what are the different aspects of this problem that the police can't handle. Here's what we can do. Here's what we bring to the table. To use your words, how can we collaborate with all of these other interested people that want to help to help make the situation better for these people in these neighborhoods? Because I've been in Baltimore. I've been in all those cities. I've been in Detroit. I've been where you've been. And I'm a tough guy, right? I mean, I'm harder than woodpecker lips. But I'm going to tell you right now, I. I've caught myself crying and, and, and clueless and scratching my head as to what can be done. It's so bad that I don't know what step the first step to take would be. I tell you the first step to take in my mind, again, stop digging. Approach every situation with the idea that we don't want to make it any worse than it already is. That's the first thing we can do. And I, I, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of conversations with police right now. I think that as horrible as the situation currently seems, uh, we've got a ton of people that are 
accepting the fact that we need to change. We need to, to modify our posture in our communities. And we just got to get rid of this, 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 this industrial age management mindset I mentioned where the police come to work and they're objectified and put up on by their bosses. And then their bosses expect them to go out in the community, be officer friendly. It's so ridiculous, right? We've got to start fixing that. There's so much to fix, Chad. I don't know if you've got any spare time. It's going to take creativity and creativity. This is, we'll, we'll sort of end on this. You know, at the, at the start of my book, Dangerous Love, I say, look, one way to define conflict, I'm not saying it's the only way, but one way is our inability to collaborate, to problem solve together. And so what happens is when we have a problem and we can't figure it out together, it creates conflict at home. Just to think about with your spouse, right? If you, if you have a problem and there isn't a, a quick or easy solution to the problem, or if you're not of the same mind as your spouse about sort of how to go through it, you know, tension starts to enter into the relationship and conflict starts to come, right? And, and so when we get, when we try to get out of the other side of that and collaboratively problem solve together, the key thing, and you've talked about this throughout this, is that I have, to, I think it's love, right? Because collaboration takes time, it takes energy, it takes creativity, it takes an open mind. It takes not just quickly dismissing ideas out of hand and saying that that'll never work or, you know, I, I, I can't agree with that. But to, to, like you did with my idea and say, OK, let's see if I could mine some things out of that idea that might actually, you know, be workful and realistic, given what I know um, about what's on the ground. And Chad, what you don't know uh, about what, you know, what I do every day and 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 starting to, to work together where it's not my solution or your solution, but it's our solution. And, and I, I really see that this is, this is where, if we're actually going to get to an actual solution in the United States around the challenges that we have in our communities and with law enforcement, it'll be a solution that's come together with both the communities and law enforcement. And there'll be a sense, as you said, that there is no actual line there, that the law enforcement is part of the community, um, that they are people amongst people. And, and that therefore what they do impacts the entire community, what the community does impacts them, that they're in this symbiotic relationship uh, together and that the only way forward is together. And, uh, and, 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 you know, to that, to me, that's dangerous love because it requires me being open to your humanity and your ideas, even if I don't like hearing them. It means I got to be open to your needs, even if they're not the same as mine. And it means that I may have to not give up what I want, but I may have to put that on hold for a minute and instead try to find out a solution that's going to get us both uh, uh, what we want. And, and that is dangerous. That requires vulnerability. And, and so it's, it's, again, about thinking about how do we really start to practice this us preservation that, uh, that our country desperately needs. And I agree with you deeply that the alt- alternative to that is polarization. The alternative to that is to, is to tell us there's no way that you can work with the other side. The other side's evil. Um, they're they're un- uncapable of changing. And therefore, the only res- response that you has, have is to use force to change them. Yeah. I mean, those, those are such great points. And I think it's, yeah, man, I, I do want you to know, Chad, that I could, I could, take you out on a daily basis and show you officers, introduce you to officers that are practicing dangerous love, introduce you to officers on a daily basis that are out there doing the things that you and I are envisioning uh, as a norm in law enforcement. There are so many of them that you'll never hear about. They're doing things that would blow you away. You know, there's so many amazing people 
in this profession that really care deeply. And some of them come from the backgrounds that you and I have been discussing, those more you know, disenfranchised neighborhoods. Uh, they're, they're so amazing. So I, I certainly want to leave your listeners with this, this idea. You know, you don't, you don't hear about, you don't hear about things that are going right. You know, you, you hear about things that are going wrong. That's just the nature of, of, of media. I, I don't blame it on media. I blame it on us and our irresponsible consumption of media. Like, you know, I think we put too high of expectations on media, but I'm telling you, I promise you there are officers out there doing, they're the next, they're the natural evolution of police and they're out there doing it. It used to be when I came on, if you were a cop like that, people may have teased you or something, right? Like, you know, you're not a real cop. You're not out there foot chasing all the time. And, you know, but, but these, these are, this is the evolution. This is the next generation and we're heading in that direction. I promise you we are. And I'm so excited to be along for the ride, at least for a little bit longer. And, uh, God, man, it's good. It's good times. Um, this is part of the reason we're having this podcast, because if you're one of those people that's struggling and you're in the box right now, I, I hope there's some humanity that's come out of this and and the the ability to both uh, able to understand there's a problem and that people know there's a problem, but also that we all have to be part of the solution to the problem and that we get better at collaboration when we understand what our part of it is and and how to change the way that I see people. And we get we're terrible at it if I refuse to see the humanity of the people that I um, am, are living with um, and I connected with, we become terrible at collaboration and terrible at creativity. And so that's the first step again and again is, 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 uh, is, is being able to see the humanity um, of the people that we live and work with every day. Yeah, well, look, I'm I'm so humbled to have this conversation with you because, again, I I feel like I'm I'm learning so much. I'm so hungry to learn more and to evolve. You know, I started out my career at a totally different mindset, and you know, I, I again, I believed what I saw in the movies when it came to the police and police work. You know, I I got sucked into that, and I, I'm seeing it totally differently now. And you know, um, I don't know. I think I told you. I mean, this is. I don't want this to be like a shameless plug, but I think I told you I'm starting a podcast. I keep having all these meaningful conversations with people and I'm bumping right up against the limits of my ability to understand and process all of these amazing ideas. Like I'm like, I can't do it alone. I need to engage other people to help me think through these things because I'm so hungry to understand more. And that's kind of the, I think leadership is a medium by which we can do that because we're always leading. And that's the purpose behind changing discourse, the podcast, changing discourse. So it's, if anybody's interested in something like that, it's going to be like at least half as good as this one. Uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll start that off on November 5th. All right. November 5th, changing discourse. I'm assuming you'll be able to find that on iTunes and Spotify and all the places that you uh, find podcast. And, uh, I'm scheduled to be a guest January 15th, I believe. And uh, I'm just excited that there's people like you, Chip, and voices like you in this conversation right now. And even though I know you and I won't agree on everything either, that's, that's the beauty of having these conversations is, is the start that dialogue. And I hope to model what sort of conversations we can have with people that are constructive instead of destructive. And so appreciate you taking the time to come on uh, today and, and be part of the podcast. You've been listening to Dangerous Love Podcast. Aloha. Aloha.